about a year after I was born, on July 29th, 1986, at a lounge in southeast Louisiana, an argument broke out between two parties. On one side of the dispute, there was a man named Van Douglas Hudson. He was there that night with his wife and his friends. And on the other side of the altercation, there was a man named Jack Mulkey who had had too much to drink. Van Douglas Hudson confronted the intoxicated Mulkey and tensions flared. Attempts were made to calm the men down, but they were unsuccessful. Hudson stormed out of the lounge. He left the building and returned shortly after holding a short-barreled 12-gauge shotgun. He shot Mulkey in the chest, which ended up killing him, and then he ejected the shell, joined his family and his friends, and they left the lounge. Witnesses later identified Hudson as the man who had fired the gun, and police found the weapon in the trunk of his car. Van Douglas Hudson was convicted of second-degree murder and incarcerated. I tell you this because Van Douglas Hudson was one of 56 convicted criminals which the outgoing governor of Louisiana pardoned in the final three months of last year. He was forgiven. He was released. And the authority that a president has or that a governor has to pardon people who've been convicted of crimes is not new. That kind of action doesn't always make the news. But there are times, some of you who know the political things, where pardons are controversial. In the case of the outgoing governor of Louisiana, the pardons made the news not just because of the number, but because of the types of crimes that had been committed. Of the 56 pardons he made in the final three months of his term, 40 of the individuals had been convicted of murder, either in the first degree or the second degree. This wasn't because of some new evidence that had exonerated them. This wasn't because the person had worked out some kind of deal to help the state in another case. This wasn't because the case had been reopened or because a judge or another jury decided to change the verdict. These pardons were the result of a governor using his authority to grant mercy. And I say this because I want you to have a proper frame of mind as we begin studying the return of Israel to the promised land. Israel had been attacked by the Assyrians. They'd been attacked by the Babylonians. But they were not mere victims of foreign nations. They had been warned over and over for generations. They had been warned that if they did not return to the law of God, they would be destroyed and the land would be given to someone else. And that's exactly what happened. The tribes, many of you know, in the north were destroyed. They were scattered by the Assyrians. And then about 150 years later, the southern kingdom is destroyed. It's taken captive by the Babylonians. Those who weren't killed, the majority who were nobles, were taken as prisoners. Scripture and history records that they were dragged out with hooks through their lips, through their nose, dragged away from their land 
to, be, to serve as slaves in the Babylonian Empire. It was painful. It was degrading. But it was all part of God's righteous judgment on a nation that refused to obey. The same God, however, who judged them so severely for their own wickedness also promised that one day he would show them mercy. He would restore them. God had promised Abraham that he would preserve his descendants. And through the prophets that were there during the time of the, of the kings, during the final years of the time in the land, through the prophets, God told Israel their captivity was not going to be permanent. This is what the opening verse of Ezra points us to. From a human perspective, it is a man named Cyrus, king of Persia, who allows them to return and to rebuild the city. But behind that is the sovereign, faithful mercy of God who keeps his promises even to a disobedient people. We're going to look a little more closely at the story. We're going to cover chapters 1 and 2 today. And just see how this unfolds. Look with me at verse 1. It says again, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. This king we know as Cyrus is known in history as Cyrus the Great, also known as Cyrus II because his grandfather was named Cyrus. He was born around 585 BC. He was a king of an ancient Iranian dynasty. Eventually, that empire grew and he conquered the Babylonians. And so in conquering the, the Babylonians, he takes over all the nations that are under their control. Under Cyrus II, before he took over the Babylonians, he actually took over the Medes as well. So we call it the Medo-Persian Empire. Under Cyrus II, it was the largest empire that the world had ever seen up to that point. But even though Cyrus's rule was great in size, it was not an authoritarian rule the way the Babylonians had, had, had exercised their rule. The Persian Empire was, was pretty accepting or tolerating of the religions of other nations. King Cyrus came to power over Babylon around 539 BC, and that's usually the way the calendar is marked as the start of the Medo-Persian Empire. The proclamation we're going to read happens, it says in the first year, so maybe even six months or a year afterward. With the rise of a new king, this kind of proclamation is aimed at reforming the people and bringing unity. The last thing you want with a new king and a new kingdom is revolts and wars. Historians know about this. There is an object at the British Museum in England, an ancient object known as the Cyrus Cylinder. It's, it's a barrel made of clay. It's sideways. It's about eight or nine inches long, three inches in diameter, a little fatter in the middle than the sides. And all around it in clay is Babylonian cuneiform. Cuneiform is an ancient form of writing. It looks like triangles and, and lines. A good portion of it has been restored. It's been translated. I just want to read some of it to you. Some historians consider it a form of propaganda for Cyrus to promote his rule. It says there, I am Cyrus, king of the universe, the great king, the powerful king, 
king of Babylon, king of the four quarters of the world. Humility was not a strong point for Cyrus. The cylinder goes on to describe his conquest of Babylon, which he claims is the result of the blessing of the gods. One of the big gods for the Babylonians and the, and the Persians is Marduk. It says there on the inscription, Marduk, the great Lord, rejoiced at my good deeds, and he pronounced a sweet blessing over me, Cyrus, the king who fears him, and pronounced a blessing over all my troops. I say that just to help us understand that Cyrus is not a converted Jew. When we read about his devotion, his desire to serve and please Yahweh, please do not take that to mean that he was repentant and converted. He took over the gods of the nations and the kings that he conquered, hoping that those other gods would bring even more blessing on his rule. And that's what drove him to be kind to the nations under his control, including the Israelites. In the Cyrus Cylinder, it also says that he made, quote, permanent sanctuaries for the gods who lived in his land. Cyrus says, again, quote, I collected all of their people and returned them to their settlements. May all the gods that I return to their sanctuaries ask for a long life for me. I have enabled all the lands to live in peace. So historians today will tell us that Cyrus allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, and he did so because it was an expression of, of his benevolence. He was a good emperor. The author of Ezra, on the other hand, wants us to understand that there's much more happening here. This is all happening, according to verse 1, so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. This is happening because, verse 1 says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. I just thought it was interesting. A side note, my ASB president in high school was named Cyrus. But all this was the result of God's prophecy. Jeremiah is specifically mentioned here. He, like other prophets, spoke of a coming restoration. You're not going to be gone forever. You will be gone for a time, but it won't be forever. For example, Jeremiah 32, 27 says, Behold, God says, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. He's prophesying from Jerusalem. You're coming back. You'll be restored. And more specifically, Jeremiah gave a time limit. In Jeremiah 25, 11, God says, again, he's in Jerusalem, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord making the land an everlasting waste. And maybe more well-known to some of you, we have Jeremiah 29.10. It says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. The timing is a little tricky 
historically because the date, the time between the final destruction of Jerusalem when the Babylonians took them out and someone like Daniel would have left, the time between the final destruction of the temple and this decree of Cyrus is about 47, 48 years. So if we're going to make it 70, you either have to start counting a little sooner or stop counting a little later. Some commentaries start counting farther back because Israel was destroyed, but during the kings, there were still attacks coming. There were actually three different deportations from the Babylonians. So some people start counting about 20 years before. That's how they get the 70. Others make up the time by stopping the clock when the temple is finally rebuilt, which is 20 years later. We're not going to get to that yet. Others take the prophecy as, as more figurative. 70 is you know, seven, God's number, and it just means a, length, a long length of time. Others say, no, God said 70, but he meant it as a limit. And in his mercy, God decided, like a parent can do, to cut a judgment short. Whatever it is, however you decide to understand 70 years, the point is, God was faithful to his word. You even have, we covered it in the book of Daniel, he would pray and he realized the time is coming soon because he knew the prophecy of Jeremiah. What's interesting about this proclamation, the proclamation from the prophets, is not just the chronology, it's that 150 years before this happens, Isaiah spoke of it and he mentioned Cyrus by name. In Isaiah 44, God says, I am the Lord who made all things. I am the one who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. I am the one saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. God calls Cyrus his shepherd. This pagan, unbelieving king is going to be an instrument in God's hand. In chapter 45 of Isaiah, Cyrus is called God's anointed. And, and God promises to bless him, to give him victory. Again, God speaking to Cyrus, verses 3 through 6 of Isaiah 45 say, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So the rise of the Persian Empire, then the destruction of the Babylonian Empire, is not just a political shift that happens to have worked out for Israel's favor. This is God working out his eternal plan. There is Jewish literature that says that Daniel, Daniel is about 13 years old. If they're in captivity 50 years, that means he's about 80 years old when the Persians come to power. There is Jewish literature saying that Daniel, who was serving in the Babylonian kingdom, began serving under Cyrus and specifically shared with him the prophecies of Isaiah, and that amazed Cyrus because he's mentioned by name, 
And it was that passage that actually led him to make the proclamation. I think, in other words, Cyrus said, I'm going to fulfill this prophecy. We don't know for sure if that's exactly what happened. Either way, God is working through his word to fulfill his plan, his decree. Let me read the decree one more time. So heralds would have gone out and proclaimed it, but it was written down. And this is verses two through four. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus is allowing them to go back. He is returning what he's taken from them, or at least what Nebuchadnezzar took from them. And he's asking for others to help them as well. We saw something very similar to this when the Israelites escaped Egypt. If you remember, the last plague was going to come and God said to the Israelites, go ask your neighbors, which would have been Egyptians, for help. And the people, there's a superstitious a superstition in them. said, here, here. They gave them gold. They gave them silver, which would eventually be used to make sinfully the, the golden calf, but also the tabernacle. God gave the Israelites favor with the Egyptians but what happened as a result of this proclamation? Did it work? The answer is yes. Let's read verses five to the end of the chapter. It says, then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin. Those are two tribes. They were the primary tribes in the south and the priests and the Levites. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. These are the, the Persian authorities over the area. Verse 9, it says, and this was the number, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All these vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. If you do the math there, it doesn't add up, just so you know. There's an initial count, I think, of what was given, and then you have a final count. It's gold, it's silver, it's bronze. Remember, the temple was designed by God to have all these special instruments with, for, the, for, the, for the, uh, the altar, for the ashes. And then they come from, so, so the Babylonian Empire is in modern-day Iran. They're traveling there. They take the things back, and they're placed in what was Nebuchadnezzar's house of the gods. I plundered the god of Jerusalem. My God is stronger than their God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar thought. All that, Cyrus says, take it back. You can have it. This would be like a prisoner being released from jail and he gets to take home all the things that 
he brought in. All, his, all, all the things that, 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 he, that was his property before. And then on top of that, if you continue the analogy, you've got other prisoners and officers saying, well, put this in there too. God made sure that the Israelites who were returning had everything they needed. And right after this list of stuff, we get a list of people. That's chapter two. Look with me at chapter two, verse one. It says, now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Verse two, they came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baana. Don't confuse the Nehemiah there or the Mordecai with the, the characters that come later. These are just repeated names. But the main name that we're going to be introduced to today is Zerubbabel. This is a man from the line of David. His name means seed of Babel. He's bo- born in Babylon. We'll learn more about him as we continue the story. Just, just think, though. Here's a mass of people leaving their, what had been their home for 50 years coming back. We're not going to go through the names and the list of chapter 2. I, I just want to summarize it for you. Ezra includes the names of families from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. He also, in chapter 2, includes the names and the numbers of priests and Levites. That's important because they're the ones who are allowed to work in the temple. Only they can work in the temple. Beyond those groups, he also includes the list of servants. And he also says there were people coming and saying, I'm a Levite. I want to serve in the temple. But they didn't have the paperwork. They didn't have the documentation to prove it. And so they were told, you cannot serve in the temple until a priest comes and he hears from God. He can divinely confirm your status. According to verse 64, so it's a long chapter, not exactly devotional material, but verse 64 tells us the whole assembly together was 42,360. That is a massive caravan of people all deciding they're going back and they're rebuilding their home. It's amazing to think of the, the sacrifice and the, the, the drive it would be to do this because most of them wouldn't have even been born in Israel. My parents came here from Guatemala separately about 50 years ago. So if someone said, Luis, you can go back to Guatemala now, you would think, back to Guatemala? I was born here. Some of you who were born here don't want to go back to where you came from. <laughs> My life is here, 50 years but they go back. They go back because they want to fulfill the word of the Lord. The journey back would have been anywhere from three to five months. And again, many of them had never even seen the land of Israel. But after almost 50 years, they're going back and they're going to reestablish their home. That's the story of Ezra. We're going to stop our study right there. But as we close our time today, I just want to help us think about what we see here. Obviously, there's a history lesson, but what can we take away from these opening chapters? Let me, let me share five highlights, and then we'll close. Number one, we see on display the mercy of God. 
We see the mercy of God in restoring his people. They did not deserve to go back. But God did it anyway. And in reading about the mercy of God, we need to remember the same is true for every single one of us every single day. I don't deserve God's mercy. You don't deserve God's mercy. The world says, yes, you do. You're good. You deserve the best. And the Bible says, no, you don't. I don't deserve the blessing of my wife, my kids, my family, a warm blanket, none of that. I sin so frequently, so grievously. But God is merciful, isn't he? God has shown us his mercy in Jesus Christ like we read about in Hebrews, like we sang about. Our Lord has paid the price of our sin. And I know that some of you come on Sundays feeling especially convicted or guilty because of something that happened this week. You did something you're not proud of. And the message of Satan is to say, well, why are you here anyway? Don't even go to church. You don't deserve to be there. And the message and the response of a Christian is, you're right, I don't deserve to be there. But I go because my God is merciful. My God is merciful. He has cleansed me in Christ. Just like Israel is getting a fresh start as a nation, God gives us a fresh start every day. We confess, we repent, and we start anew. His mercies are new every morning. This is our God. Secondly, connected to his mercy, we see his faithfulness. The reason God was merciful to Israel was because he is faithful to his promises. I said I'm bringing you back, therefore I will bring you back. And just like God will keep his promises to Israel, he's going to keep every single promise he's made to us who are part of the church of Jesus Christ. The greatest of those promises is that one day Christ is coming back. He's going to reign. He's going to rule. We don't have a timeline for it the way the Israelites did for Babylon, but it's going to happen because God is faithful to his promises. And so we have hope. We can endure. We can persevere because no matter how difficult life is here or right now, Christ is coming and nothing is going to undo the plan of God. So we see the mercy of God in restoration and we should respond with gratitude. We see the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his promises that should give us hope. Number three, we see here the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is an amazing doctrine. It is on every page of scripture. God is sovereignly controlling everything that happens. Verse one says he's the one who stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Later, verse uh, five says, God stirred those to go back and rebuild. He's working. Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I know 2024 is an election year. I know that a lot of people's expectations and hopes and joys are connected to who ends up or doesn't end up in the White House. But we need to know, no matter who's sitting in the Oval Office, God is sitting on his throne. He is 
the potter. We are the clay. God was sovereign over the Assyrians. God was sovereign over the Babylonians. God was sovereign over the Medes and the Persians. God was sovereign over the Romans. All of this is working out for his eternal plan. The stuff we like, the stuff we don't like. In Acts 2 and Acts 4, when the disciples are gathered to pray, they think about the persecution they're facing now, and they said, all the stuff that we saw Jesus go through, his death, all that had been preordained by God. It doesn't excuse the sin, but it gives us confidence that God is working. Paul says in Romans 8, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who love God. And that good is us being transformed into the image of Christ. So just like God orchestrated the return of the Israelites, and we'll learn more more about it in the weeks to come, God has for eternity orchestrated the victory of Christ and his people. Nothing is going to change that. And if you and I believe in the power and in the sovereignty of God, that doesn't mean, well, glass of lemonade, sit back, I don't do anything. That's not what that means. You have a wrong view of sovereignty. It should lead us to depend on him. It should lead us to pray. Daniel knew the 70 years were up and he was praying to God. Christ knows the sovereignty of God more than any of us and his prayer life was much more faithful than ours. Kings and presidents don't run this world. God runs the world. So we continue to rely on him. We're grateful for the times when religious authorities rule the way God would rule or at least allow us to serve him. But we persevere even in times when they don't. I was in a meeting yesterday, a lunch with some pastors from Pico Rivera. They're planning an Easter event in Pico Park, I think. And I said, the city's doing this? He goes, yeah. What are they calling it? He said, uh, Pico Rivera Spring Celebration. They can't say Easter. They're not going to say Christ. I said, but it's us. It's our event. He said, yeah. And he was going back to other previous mayors and or, uh, administrations that had said, do it. What do you need? We'll, we'll pay for this. We'll buy you the hot dogs. We'll pay for this. They're just asking the churches to, to be involved. And I was, you know, we're preparing for this message. They're thinking, that's just, I don't know anything about the mayor, the city council, or what they're after. I don't know anything about their personal faith. But we thank God for the ability to do that and invite people to church on Easter Sunday. All that because God is sovereign. And so we pray. A fourth element in this story is the provision of God. God doesn't just say, okay, Israelites, you can go back, figure it out. I hope you can find out how to do it on your own. He doesn't do that. He provided for his people, and he provided abundantly. Going back to Genesis, where did Noah get the wood for the ark? You ever think about that? That's a lot of trees. God provided the wood. Noah had everything he needed. When the Israelites go back, they have been given everything they need to get the job done. There's a lot of, it's like the Ikea box. You got, there's a lot of work you got to do, but it's all here. God has fully equipped them, he, and he did so generously. He gave them more than they needed. They have animals to, for food. They have animals for sacrifices. So I think a personal lesson here is that 
God is not going to call you to do something that he's not going to provide for in some way. Again, it doesn't mean, all right, I'm going to do this. I don't have to do anything now. God sent, drop money from the sky. It's not that. But it does mean we don't have to panic about not having enough. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and everything you need, all these things, food, clothes, water, everything you need will be given unto you. Paul said it to the church of the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 9, he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So the generosity, you see there, all things, all times. It's not a promise that you get everything you want. It's a promise that you have everything you need to complete the assignment that God has given you. You just better make sure you're doing God's work, not your own. In a corporate sense, I think there's also a reminder here that God has gifted us as a local church, first bilingual Baptist, with the ability to do all that he asks us to do. We are the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit has fit us together. And if the time comes where we need more money or more ministers or more whatever, he, he will take care of that. Again, not apart from our work, doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing, but it means we can proceed with confidence if we're focused on the glory of God. It doesn't mean it'll be easy, but God will provide. The last reminder I see here, this comes from the end of chapter one and chapter two, is the administration of God. We see his mercy, we see his faithfulness, we see his sovereignty, we see his provision, and lastly, we see his administration God is not a sloppy God. Once you start seeing a bunch of numbers in your Bible, I know the temptation is, okay, just skim it and be done with the chapter. But at least pause and take note that God had a list. Somebody counted these things. God took role. All the instruments were accounted for. The people who were leaving, they were registered according to their clan, their family. As Paul said to the Corinthians, God is a God of order. And we'll see it as the story continues. There's an organization, there's a, there's a structure to what God is doing. And I think if I can put it like this, God, in some ways, don't stress it too far, God is an administrator. As a church, there's a helpful reminder here that administration is not supposed to be an afterthought. Even if you're not an administrative person, I don't like all this stuff and money and numbers, organization and charts, that's not me. But then you go to work and you get mad because no one's telling you what to do and your neighbor's not doing his job. That's administration. Administrative clarity, we know, the temptation for me is to wrongfully idolize it. But we don't throw administration out the window. There is a strength and a unity that good administration brings. It clarifies roles. It empowers leaders. It, it helps create accountability. Good structure allows for things to be done with excellence. And if you've ever read the books of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, you know God cares about details, particularly when it comes to worship and ministry. At a personal level, just for, for us individually, there's a reminder here that we don't 
honor God by living life every day just shooting from the hip. If we're going to do great things for the glory of God, there should be some organization behind what we're doing. Even something as simple as, you know, this year I want to have my neighbors over to the house for dinner. I want to get to know them. I want them to to see my life. I want to step into their life. That's great. Is that going to be helped by some kind of structure? Yes. It's not structure or administration for the sake of structure and administration. It's for the benefit of the ministry. You know what? Let me, let me, let me, do I know their names? Do I know their phone numbers? Do I know the names of their spouses or their kids? Do I know their birthdays? I'm not trying to say that if you're a godly person, every aspect of your life is going to be planned out. To every, you know, here's what I'm eating next Thursday night. I already know what I'm having for dinner. That's, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that when it comes to formal things like ministry in the church or personal ministries that you, that you want to begin or, or be a part of, it helps when there's some sort of structure. Why is it that the hospitality team says, here's whose turn it is this month. Here's who's on security this week. Here's who's doing this or that. It, 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 there's a benefit to that. And just like God stirred in the hearts of these Israelites to go back, he's going to stir in us to do something. What is that? What's God calling you to do? What's the role he has for you in this season of life? You have to think about that for yourself. If it's in the church, maybe it's going to be talking to someone about being on the music team. Maybe you're going to help with the nursery, with the kids, with the classes, with with security team, hospitality, whatever it is. You, You want to do it right. And you want to do it with excellence. Doing something with excellence means if you make a commitment, you honor the commitment. Put it on your calendar. So much harder for us men. Our default is, honey, what am I doing today? Honey, what are we doing next week? Not a good thing. Write it down somewhere so you don't forget it. Some of you I know go, you know, I think of administration and charts and it's all so stuffy. It, it stops the flow of the spirit of God's work. That's not always the case. Good administration, healthy, clear organizational structures will help the work of God move forward. Moses appointed elders so he could lead the people and not tire himself out. God ordained teams and tribes so that they knew who was responsible to tear down the tabernacle and build it back up. And when it was torn down, God told them what order to march in. Even the geese structure themselves when they fly. Why wouldn't God's people? So we don't want to always you know, run, cannonball into ministry with some kind of dream, but no actual plan. If God is moving in you to do something, plan out how you're going to make that happen. Let the organization, the administration of God show through a little bit and then let it excel for the glory of God. We're going to see it as we continue the story. God uses leadership and organization so that his cause advances and his name is known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for these simple but profound reminders. You are merciful. You're gracious and kind, and we pray that would be demonstrated in our mercy and kindness and love for others. May we forbear and forgive. May we embrace people and family members and children and parents. 
knowing they don't live up to your standard because we don't either. I thank you for your faithfulness. Make us reflective of your faithfulness, people who are true to their word. Give us confidence in your promises. Put your promises at the front of our mind, especially in tough days. Bring to our mind your sovereignty, your power. Help us continue to be dependent. We want to learn from what you've done through Israel and see you work in the same way in our lives individually and as a church. Give us also the confidence of your provision. We have seen you provide for our families and our church in so many ways. You will be faithful to do it again. We don't want to be arrogant or proud. We want to rest knowing that you'll take care of us. And we want to organize ourselves in a way that best places people in areas of giftedness and effectiveness and allows people to be fulfilled and satisfied and and contributing to the work we're doing together for the glory of Christ. We ask in his name, amen.